Um, the Bible reading for today is 2 Thessalonians 3. So would you please read along with me? As for other matters, brothers and sisters, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honoured just as it was with you. And pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil people, for not everyone has faith. But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord that you are doing and will continue to do the, the things we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They are not busy, they are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. And as for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of what is good. Take special note of anyone who does not obey our instruction in this letter. Do not associate with them in order that they may feel ashamed. Yet do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them as you would a fellow believer. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand, which is distinguishing Mark in all my letters. This is how I write. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to another iteration of Church Online. My name is Hendre, and if I haven't met you before, um, I'm a minister in training here at Trinity Church Unley while I'm currently studying in the same building at the Bible College. This week, we will be doing our final installment of a three-week series on the book of 2 Thessalonians. Um, in the past two weeks, we have seen um, the call to endure hardship. Um, and last week, we saw um, this idea of standing firm, even in the face of false teaching. Enduring hardship, standing firm, both of these words can sort of have connotations of stillness, of just holding on, of stationary resistance. However, this week, as we dive into chapter 3, we see that this is far from what Paul had in mind. Rather than simply telling the church to stay put, we see how Paul calls them to action. As we go through chapter 3 this morning, we will see a call to prayer, we will see a call to good busyness, and we will see a call to loving correction. As Paul kicks off this closing chapter of the letter of 2 Thessalonians, we see him starting by calling the Thessalonian church to prayer. And we see this in the first five verses of this chapter. Verses 1 and 2 read, As for other matters, brothers and sisters, pray for us that the message of the Lord may be spread rapidly and be honoured, just as it was with you. And pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil people, for not everyone has faith. If there was ever a candidate who you think might be tempted to grow a little conceited because of their ministry, 
Paul would be top of that list. He is a giant of the faith. He's a founding father of the church. He's someone who was used so successfully, powerfully, and significantly by God. But what we see here in the opening verses is rather than any hint of an arrogance or of self-reliance in Paul, we see Paul starting this call to action, this call to works by humbling himself before God. Verse 1 says, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honoured. Paul here is acknowledging the weakness, the limitations of him and his companions. And ultimately in doing so, he's acknowledging their dependence on God. That is, that by God's grace and in his power is the only reason any ministry succeeds. It's the only reason Paul's ministry has succeeded, not because of his own merit or skill. And in Paul requesting prayer of the Thessalonian church, he's not only humbling himself before God, but he's also humbling himself before them. The church he established, the church he has been such a huge significant part of. He's asking them for help, for partnership, for prayer. Paul then continues in this pointing towards God, contrasting the faithfulness of God with the faithlessness of sinful humanity. Verses 2 to 5 read, And pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil people, for not everyone has faith. But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord that you are doing and will continue to do the things we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. Paul reassures the Thessalonian church of God's faithfulness, assuring them that God will strengthen them, that he will protect them, that he will enable them to do all they have been commanded, and that he will direct their hearts to God's love and Christ's perseverance. What a powerful reminder of Christ's sovereignty this is, of God's sovereignty. At the beginning of this call to action, of this call to works, Paul starts by acknowledging fully that our salvation is in God's hands, that he's all-powerful in our faith, that he is sovereign and all-powerful in our perseverance, in all that we do. Back in week one of 2 Thessalonians, we saw a challenge to prayer, and a challenge to be praying for our brothers and sisters, particularly for those who are in hardship. Pray that they might persevere. But this week, I think the challenge for us is to be more like Paul, that we might be just as quick as Paul was here to humble ourselves before God and before our family in Christ by asking them for prayer. Our human hearts are so quick to turn to pride and to hide any sense of weakness or insecurity. But will we together fight that sinful desire and humbly and honestly acknowledge the reality of our dependence on God? Will you make the most of your church family, humbly asking those around you for prayer? But even more than simply just being a challenge of prayer, a challenge to pray or to ask for prayer, I think there's also this challenge in here in the content of Paul's prayer. Paul here only asks for two things of the Thessalonian church. That God would be advancing the gospel through him and his companions, and that they might be delivered from evil people who lack faith. 
That is, that they would not face opposition from those who do not believe. And this not for their own sake, but so that the spread of the gospel might not be hindered. How much of your prayer life is consumed with praying simply for your circumstances, for the busyness of work, for an upcoming test or project, or for your sore arm or leg, or whatever it might be? How many of the prayer requests that you share at Bible study or that you share with friends are focused purely on the incidentals of life, rather on that which is eternal? These are not bad things to pray for. Indeed, they're good things and they're things we ought to be praying. But God is sovereign, not just over the incidental things of life. Surely, just as much as we pray for these incidental temporary circumstances, we should be praying even more for that which is eternal. Surely that which is eternal is just as, if not more important. Who are you praying for that they might come to faith? Where are you praying that God might use you to share the gospel? I'd like to challenge you this week that every time you pray, you would add this prayer of Paul to that prayer. This prayer that he says that the message of the Lord may be spread rapidly and be honoured through us, through me through you. And let us see how our sovereign God answers that prayer. A call to good busyness. As we saw last week, um, there was this particular false teaching happening amongst the Thessalonian church. This claim that Christ had already returned. And we see a further outworking of this eschatological view. That is that many of the Thessalonians had become idle. There were those among the Thessalonian church with their eyes so fixed on the return of the Lord that they had ceased to work at all. Whether that be because they felt like having missed the boat of Christ's return, their life was now worthless, or whether it be simply that they were so looking forward to that day that everything else didn't matter and they just waited for him to come and get them. Either way, ultimately all they were doing was waiting, we see. We see Paul clearly rebuking these people, saying in verse 7, For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you. Paul told them plainly in chapter 2 last week that Christ had not yet returned. And so he, he rebukes their idleness. He goes on to use the example of him and his companions working faithfully while they were with the Thessalonian church. They did this so that they might not be a burden to anyone, so that the gospel might not be hindered by the awkwardness of money. And ultimately, we see so that they might be an example to the church. He goes on in the same vein, but in what quickly turns into another one of those awkward moments we have encountered in 2 Thessalonians. A brief moment of discomfort. As Paul says in verse 10, For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. Yikes. This sounds... Harsh. It certainly raises an eyebrow, but I think if we again embrace that awkwardness, if we do not just skip over this, but pause, we can see what Paul is actually trying to say. Look carefully at verse 10. Paul says, the one who is not willing to work. 
That is to say, firstly, that Paul is not saying anything in this verse about those who are unable to work, whether that be because of physical health, because of disability, or some other circumstance. But he's talking to those who are unwilling. This is a small but a significant distinction. And secondly, it's also worth acknowledging that whilst Paul here has used the example of working for money, of an occupation, that the work he's talking about here goes well beyond simply one's employment. And because of this, this is going beyond simply talking about someone's employment status. Paul is not ripping into those who are unemployed. He's not having a go at the majority of women in this context who didn't have formal employment but worked at home. He's not even criticizing the lame or sick. He's not saying that children should not eat. You can work hard without having a job. And what constitutes work is very dependent on your circumstance, on your stage of life, on your age, on your health. No, rather Paul is emphasizing that reality which we have seen in the Bible right from the beginning in Genesis, that humanity was made to work, that we were not just made to sit around and wait, but to put our hands to work. As far as we are able, in each life stage, in each health circumstance, with all of that taken into account, we should be making the most of the time God has granted us to be active in using that time for good, to respond to this call of action. Having said all this and spoken about idleness, I think it's worth acknowledging that for most of you, idleness is not a problem. The majority of you can be commended in this area. Many of you work very hard. You work long hours, And in many ways, that is good. It is proper in the life of a Christian. We are to be a people not marked by laziness, but by faithfulness and hard work. But Paul here does make a distinction between being busy and between being busy bodies. And while I'm not insinuating that any of you particularly are busy bodies, It is worth looking at this verse. We see in verse 11, we hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They are not busy, they are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and to earn the food they eat. That is to say that clearly there is more going on than simply the need to be busy. Paul gives an example of a bad thing we can be filling our time with, being busy bodies. But I think it's even more complex than that. It's even more than just us doing good things. Not all the good things we can do are equally good. And I think if we're honest with ourselves as a church, the bigger threat for us is not idleness, but is that we would be busy doing the wrong things. Not necessarily bad things, but that there'd be warped priorities that our time will be allocated in an unhelpful way to the tasks we set our hands to. Whilst working hard at our jobs is absolutely good and fitting, spending all our time at work is not. Whilst cleaning your house is a good thing to do, if you never did anything but clean your house, that's not good either. 
So what should we then be busying ourselves with? While it's pretty clear in this passage that being like those among the Thessalonians who had become idle is clearly not the right thing, I think there's perhaps still something admirable about them. Something which I think challenges many of us. If we are honest with ourselves, how much do we really long for Christ's return? I think most of us are thoroughly convinced it is a good thing. And so in that sense, we do look forward to it. But having said that, I think we're also happy to wait for it. Do you remember being a child on Christmas Eve? That longing and excitement for Christmas morning and the unwrapping of gifts. I feel like there are countless stories in every family and household of children being unable to sleep, of sneaking out of bed and taking a peek, or waking up super early and badgering their parents so that the day could get underway. The excitement of what was to come is just so totally overwhelming. It is all-consuming at times. Yet I think for many of us, we fail to truly look forward to that day, the day of Christ's return this much. We are happy to wait for it. That's not to say we don't want it to happen. We definitely do. But you know what? I think it would be great if he would just wait till I could get married. Or um, maybe he can wait till I have a few kids and have had a go at that whole parenting thing. Or if he could wait till I'm sort of roundabout on deathbed anyway and I've actually lived my life. None of those are bad things. But we shouldn't be like the Thessalonians being so caught up in it that we are idle, but I do think we ought to crave that day more than we do. That we ought to pray that God would hasten his return. Why do you think you don't? Is it perhaps that, like many of us, you have made an idol of some of the good gifts God has given us? Do you fail to truly believe that the life and the eternity thereafter would truly be better than anything we have experienced or could imagine? Or is it just that you've gotten so caught up in this life? I mean, it, it has been 2,000 years since Jesus was here. He said he would return soon, but for 2,000 years that hasn't been the case. And so if we're honest with ourselves, we actually don't expect him to come soon at all. And because of that, we just don't think about it. We don't crave his return. I am convinced that if we all longed for that day a bit more, if we anticipated it a little bit more, it would affect the way we live. If we thought Christ was actually returning soon, we would be more inclined to be bold despite the awkwardness. We would be more inspired to stand firm. And we would be that bit more inclined to respond to this call to action. How are you using the time God has given you until he returns? Are you doing that which is good? But even more than that, are you doing that which is eternal? As you look at the rest of your year, what might you need to say no to so that you can have space in your diary to not just be doing that which is good, so that we fail to do that which is better? Are you spending time with unbelieving friends 
so that you might share the gospel with them? Are you making time daily to spend with God in his word, in prayer? And are you making and taking the time to invest in other believers, in your kids, to be spurring them on in their faith? Would you be willing to show your diary to a friend? What follows in verses 14 and 18 is a call to love and correction as Paul closes out the book of 2 Thessalonians. Verse 14 says, Take special note of anyone who does not obey our instructions in this letter. Do not associate with them in order that they might feel ashamed. Yikes, here we go again. Verse 14 again is blunt and harsh and sounds unforgiving. This idea has actually already appeared back in verse 6 where it said, In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. But as we have experienced every time before, if we resist the desire to run from the awkwardness, what Paul is actually saying becomes clear. If we read on from verse 14, we actually see this. Yet, do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them as you would a fellow believer. We see in verse 15 that the reason for Paul's instruction, the reason for him saying to not associate with someone, is motivated by the good of that person. It is an act of warning, of instruction, of correction. It's not just suddenly giving someone the cold shoulder or cutting them from your life, but it is in love speaking to brothers and sisters when they fail. To point them back to God. And yes, if they fail to listen, to not just drop it and pretend like everything's okay, but rather to continue, to continue acting in love, to act in a manner which continues to be helpful to them, so that that person might come to repentance, so they might see the error of their ways. We spoke earlier in this series about the awkwardness of judgment. And so so we said many of us have this fear of being seen as judgmental. But Paul here is calling this church to loving correction. Calling them to not just putting their blinkers on, but to embracing the awkwardness. To being willing to have tough conversations with our brothers and sisters. To be willing to help them see where they are falling into sin. And to be willing to practice discipline, not because we get any pleasure from it, but so that they might come to repentance. So that they might be restored to the unity with the body of believers. I'm not going to pretend for a moment that this is easy. I'm a chronic conflict avoider. I I hate this stuff. And being on the receiving end of it is not necessarily fun either. But I'm so thankful to God for the friends who have been willing to call me out, who have lovingly and graciously shown me patterns of sin in my life, who have sat with me through the stages of denial, through the awkwardness, and through the repentance, and who have helped me reconcile to those my sin has hurt. Loving correction is painful for both parties involved, but... Ignoring sin in the lives of our friends and family 
will ultimately lead to even more pain. Sin spreads like wildfire, both in our own lives, but also in the church. And so we need to take it seriously. Are you willing to have these tough conversations with your church family? Are you open to being challenged by them? And so Paul comes to a close in this letter as he gives the Thessalonian church a final reminder of God's peace and grace and gives them an assurance that this letter, unlike that false teaching we saw in chapter 2, is indeed from him. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with all of you. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand, which is the distinguishing mark in all my letters. This is how I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And so, as we look back over the series of two Thessalonians, as we have embraced the awkwardness of this book, we have seen how we are able to be bold despite the awkwardness of owning our faith as our primary identity in full confidence that we have been given all we need to endure whatever suffering might come. How we have seen we need not be deceived, but we can stand firm because we have been given everything by God. We have been given his word, we have been given his spirit, and we have been given the church. And we have seen this week how we have been called to action to be living out our faith until that day Christ returns, busying ourselves with all the good things he has given us to do, and not just the good things, but also that which is eternal. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the book of 2 Thessalonians, and we thank you for how we see your faithfulness to your people throughout it. God, we pray that we would be a people of faithfulness to you, that we would respond to the call of action we have seen in your word, that we would be a people quick to humble ourselves, quick to pray, and particularly quick to pray for those who do not yet know you, that we would be a people marked by doing good, but also marked by doing that which is eternal, and that we would be a people marked by loving correction, of humbly and graciously coming before one another, of acknowledging our own flaws and failings, but helping each other to reflect your son's image more clearly and to together be doing a better job at witnessing to your amazing grace and unity in this world. Amen.